All right. Take a copy of the scriptures. Find Second Chronicles 17 here in just a minute. That's where we're going to jump into the story as we talk about Jehoshaphat. When a lot of you think about Jehoshaphat, you probably think of the phrase jumping Jehoshaphats. And I'll let you do your own research on the history of that phrase. Uh, it is Jehoshaphat, sort of a tongue twister. So I'll do my best not to spit on anybody tonight as I say that and stumble over that. How do we get to Jehoshaphat or Jehoshaphat in the line of the kings? That story of Israel's leadership goes all the way back to Moses. We could take it back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but really Israel is a nation that goes all the way back to Moses. Moses is the one who leads the people out of slavery in Egypt. He's the first leader. He is I think without question the most unique leader in Israel's history. He's the lawgiver, he's the judge, he functions as the supreme court, he delegates some authority, but he's clearly the head honcho. He's also a uniquely meek man, a humble man, and he's never referred to as a king, but he essentially functions like a king. The buck stops with Moses. He equips a man named Joshua to be the second leader in Israel's history. Joshua is mostly a general, but he's a godly man, and he leads the people into the promised land, and they fight these battles, and he divvies up the land. Then you come to the time of the judges, and you've got these tribal warlords, these very flawed men. Uh, these men, sometimes you read the story, you're looking in vain for something noble or dignified or godly in them. They're just sort of a mess. The last of that group is Samuel, and he is a godly man. He has some very un ungodly children, but Samuel is a godly man. And after Samuel, we come to the monarchy. Saul is the first king, then David, then Solomon, and then we have a civil war. Functionally, it's a civil war. It's a division in the nation. You have many of the tribes seceding from Judah, and you have Rehoboam being the first king of Judah, and you have Jeroboam being the first king of Israel. All of the kings who come after Jeroboam are wicked. All of them. Not all of the kings that come after Jeroboam are in his family line. In fact, next week we're going to talk about Jehu. Jehu starts a new dynasty within the nation of Israel, but they're still wicked. All of those kings of Israel are wicked. The kings of Judah are a mixed bunch, and tonight we're talking about Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa. Corey preached on Asa a couple of weeks ago. One disclaimer as we've come to this point in our study of the kings. By the time you get to Jehoshaphat, the names start to get really confusing. And they get really confusing because you have people in Judah and in Israel with the same name, but it's not the same person. And so when you're reading these stories or when you're trying to study, to teach, or preach on these stories, you start to read all these names over and over and over again, and you start to get them all mixed up in your head. There was actually a typo on my notes this morning as I was going through it, and Jake, give Jake credit. I don't give him a lot of credit. He doesn't deserve a lot of credit, but I'm going to give Jake a little bit of credit. He came in my office. He said, is this name right? Of course it's right. Maybe it's not right. So he caught me. Way to go, Jake. All right. I want you to start off tonight to get your mind thinking about Jehoshaphat. I want you to think about influence 
and not asking for any out loud answers, but I just want you to think about the people who have influenced you the most in your life. And that could be a positive influence or that could be a negative influence. I hope that when I say to you, who are the people who have influenced you the most in a positive sense, I hope there's people that come to mind. Maybe you think of parents or maybe you think of grandparents. I would think of both of those. Maybe you think of friends. I hope the Lord has sent friends into your life at some point and you would look at them and say, that person has been a good, godly influence on me. I also hope that you can look back on your life and think, These are some people I have been a good influence on. I have influenced them for good. I've influenced them for godliness. But when you think about influence, you realize it's a two-way street. There are times we have a good influence on people. There's also times we have a bad influence on people. And I'm just like you. I can look back at times in my life, and I can think about some of the folks that the Lord sent into my life at different periods of time, and I look back on that and say, man, I wasted that opportunity to be a good influence on that person. I really wasn't a good influence on that person at all. And I think about people who were not a good influence on me. That's not to blame any of my behavior or any of your sinful behavior on other people, but the reality is that there are people who come into your life who are not a good influence, not a godly influence at all. I bring all of that up to say to you, the story of Jehoshaphat, I think, is a fascinating study of influence. This is a man who had, for the most part, a positive influence on his nation. His reign as king is seen in a positive light. He had a good influence on his nation on the whole. But it's a fascinating story because he is also a man, he's also a king who allowed And at times it seemed like he even invited negative influences into his own life. And it's such a strange dynamic to read his story where you say, he tended to have a positive influence on the nation, but he seemed to have an issue, a struggle, something in his heart that was just off a little bit where he kept inviting negative, ungodly, evil, wicked influences into his life. And so we're going to try to sort all that out tonight. I'd like us to work through some of the story of Jehoshaphat in the text, and I'll give you a few thoughts as we go through this section, Jehoshaphat in the Bible. He took the throne of Judah in the fourth year of Ahab. Corey talked about Ahab last week. So their reigns overlapped. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he took the throne. He reigned 25 years, means he died when he was 60. His mother was Azuba, and he walked in the ways of his father Asa. And I gave you a few references here in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 15 and 1 Kings 22. I don't want to look those up. I'll let you look those up on your own. I just want to make an interesting observation. Kings was written first, and Chronicles was written second. Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, tells the story of the kings of Israel and Judah. It's the part where you read the back and forth and sometimes your head starts spinning because you're saying, wait, who's on the throne? Wait, who's go- what's going on here? And it's really hard to keep up with. Kings was written about the time the people were going into exile and it was written, First and Second Kings, to say to the people, this is why you're going into exile. This is, you messed up. You didn't honor the Lord, you've worshiped idols and this is why you're going into exile. Sometime later, 
First and Second Chronicles was written. First and Second Chronicles has nothing to say for the most part about the kings of Israel. It only focuses on the kings of Judah. And I don't want to give you the impression that First and Second Chronicles leaves out all the bad stuff, but it leaves out some of the bad stuff. And it tells the story of Judah, not to explain this is why you went into exile, but to tell the people who are now coming back from exile, don't forget who you are. You're still God's people. And these are the things that God has done through the line of David in the nation of Judah, and he's bringing you back to this land. First and second Kings, this is why you got sent into exile. You're a bunch of goobers. First and second Chronicles, the Lord loves you. And he's made promises to you, and he's bringing you back now, and you need to remember who you are. So here's what's interesting. Jehoshaphat almost doesn't show up in First and Second Kings. There's all sorts of stuff about Ahab and Elijah and all these other kings floating around, and it's just a big mess. And Jehoshaphat's just like sort of a passing note. You don't get a lot of information about him. But then when you come back to First and Second Chronicles... He gets four whole chapters just devoted to his reign, and there's a ton of information that you don't pick up and you don't learn about him in Kings. So I just think that's an interesting thing to be mindful of. Here's a a truth about Jehoshaphat you need to know. He was a good, godly king. He's a good king. He's a godly king. That's what the text says. When we say this about Jehoshaphat or some of these other kings, here's how you ought to think about this statement. If you watched the movie of Jehoshaphat's life, the movie, he was a good, godly king. However, with all of these kings, as you watch that movie, there are places where you can hit the pause button and say, that's not good or godly. The snapshot at times is not great. That's true for all of these kings, it's true for Jehoshaphat. But when the authors of Kings and Chronicles step back, they're looking at the big scope of these kings and their reign. And the big picture view of Jehoshaphat is this was a good king and this was a godly king. So let's read a little bit about him. 2 Chronicles 17, let's read verse 1 to 6. Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah And he set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but he sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore, he took the high places and the ashram out of Judah. So that's a lot of good stuff. He did not seek after the Baals. He did not worship the Canaanite rain deities. He didn't worship those gods. He didn't seek those gods. He actually set his heart to seek after the Lord, all caps, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Not only did he seek after the Lord, but the text says his heart was courageous in standing up for the Lord. Example, he got rid of the ashram. 
There's a fertility cult that always popped up in Israel and in Judah. And Jehoshaphat did everything in his power to get rid of that cult, to say, we're not going to worship that deity. We're not going to look to Baal for rain. We're not going to look to Asherah to give us children and to increase our flocks. We're going to trust in the Lord. So this is a big picture view. He's a good king. He's a godly king. Now, if you keep reading in like verse 7 down to verse uh, 9, there's a bunch of names. Just look at those names. I'm not going to try to read them to you. It's a bunch of names. They're priests and they're Levites. And Jehoshaphat does something pretty cool. He gets a bunch of priests and Levites together and he says, I want you to go on a preaching tour throughout Judah. Here's the law. And I want you to go around and hold Bible conferences for the people. There's not a lot of kings that did this. That's a good thing. He gets the leadership together. He gives them the law and he says, go teach the people. Explain to the people what God wants from them. Explain to the people how they can seek the Lord. Look what we read starting in verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. They made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute. The Arabians brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat grew steadily greater. He built in Judah fortresses and store cities He had large supplies in the city of Judah. He had soldiers, mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. This was the muster of them by fathers' houses of Judah, the commanders of thousands, Adnan the commander with 300,000 mighty men of valor. Next to him, Jehonan, the commander with 280,000 him. And next to him, Amasiah, the son of Zichri, a volunteer for the service of the Lord with 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor with 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. Next to him, Jehozabad with 180,000 armed for war. That's over a million men. That's a lot of soldiers. That's a big, big army. These were in the service of the king besides those whom the king had placed in the fortified cities throughout all of Judah. Here's the big picture takeaway. He's a good king, and he loves the Lord, and he's not worshiping false gods, and he's doing what he can to encourage the people to seek after Yahweh. Remember, we're talking about influence. All of this, it's good, godly influence. Until chapter 18, Jehoshaphat made a foolish marriage alliance with Ahab, the king of Israel. Chapter 18, verse 1, now Jehoshaphat had riches, great riches, and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Corey talked about Ahab last week. He was not a good king, nor was he a godly king. And you read this chapter 17, Jehoshaphat has everything moving in the right direction. Right? We're teaching the people. We're building up the army. We have lots of treasure. All the nations are afraid of us, just like Deuteronomy said they would be afraid of us if we sought the Lord and worshiped the Lord. Everything is going according to plan. He is exercising his influence tremendously for good and for godliness. And then of all the things that he could do, he doesn't need money. He's got money. He doesn't need an army. He's got over a million men enlisted in his service. He says, I'm going to make a marriage alliance with that guy. It's a strange thing. This is the the family dynamic. Jehoshaphat, 
makes this alliance with Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel have a son named Ahaziah. They have a son named Jehoram, and they have a daughter named Athaliah. Jehoshaphat also has a son named Jehoram. I told you, it gets confusing. Multiple Jehorams. It's not the only multiple that shows up. You have multiple Jehorams, but Jehoram marries Athaliah. So you have a good godly king who decides, I'm going to give my son to be married to a wicked, godless, Corey described him, I think accurately, as a mobster. I want to marry in to the mob family. And you, get, you read verse 1. Look, you read verse 1 in 18 after you've read chapter 17. And if you are paying attention at all, you say, why in the world did he do that? Do you know how many times I have talked to parents or husbands or wives or children about their parents, church members who have been affected by somebody else's sin and they're dealing with the consequence of it and they look at me and they say, I don't understand why they would do this. It doesn't make any sense. That's sin doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're right back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in paradise, together, walking and talking with the Lord in the cool of the day. Why did they listen to the serpent? It doesn't make any sense, but sin doesn't make any sense. And there's no explanation to be found here. He's got all the money he needs. He's building store cities for all his money. He has a massive army. He doesn't need Ahab's army. doesn't need him. Ahab might need Jehoshaphat, but Jehoshaphat does not need Ahab. The Lord's favor is on them. And he does this foolish, foolish thing. And there's a cost. Sin always has consequences. Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about that later tonight. But let me just show you this. This marriage alliance cost Jehoshaphat his reputation. We're not going to read all of chapter 18. Corey covered part of this story last week. It's part of the challenge of these kings when they overlap. He gives his son to be married to Ahab's daughter. He finds himself hanging out at Ahab's house. And Ahab says, let's go fight together. And Jehoshaphat says, okay, let's go. Whatever you want to do, I'm cool with that. He says, we should talk to the prophets first. So Ahab calls all the false prophets in Israel. And they all say, yeah, go do it. It's going to be great. And Jehoshaphat says, is there anybody that could speak for Yahweh. We've heard from the prophets of Baal. We've heard from the prophets of Asherah. Is there anybody that could speak for the Lord? And Ahab reluctantly brings in Micaiah. And Corey mentioned this story. It's just this awkward conversation where Micaiah shows up and he's sort of sarcastic and saying what they want to hear and he's sort of teasing them and they get mad. Here's the end of it. Ahab gets so mad at what Micaiah, the prophet of the Lord, says. This is what you read in verse 25. The king of Israel said, seize Micaiah, take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. Throw him in jail because he presumed to speak for the Lord. Ahab says that. He throws a prophet in jail. What does Jehoshaphat do? Absolutely nothing. Total crickets. 
This is a man who sent Levites to teach the word of God in his own nation. He is bigger and richer and stronger than Ahab. And Ahab sends the one prophet of Lord to prison, and Jehoshaphat says absolutely nothing about it. I can't explain that to you other than to say this relationship was toxic from the get-go when he gave his son to be married to Ahab's daughter. Cost him his reputation, and we'll come back to that in a minute. He fails to stick up for a prophet of the Lord. Secondly, it almost cost him his life. Marriage alliance almost cost him his life. Again, Corey talked about this. Ahab says, look, we're going into battle. Here's what we're going to do, Jehoshaphat. You dress like a king, I'm going to wear a disguise, a costume. And they go into battle, and they're looking for the king. So they go after Jehoshaphat, and they figure out, oh, that's not the king we're looking for. And then Corey mentioned it, a random archer pulls his arrow, kills, uh, kills Ahab, and he dies that day in battle. Jehoshaphat almost dies in battle. He is almost hunted down like a dog on the battlefield because he has this relationship, very unhealthy relationship, started when he gave his son to be married to Ahab's daughter. He just shows up at Ahab's house. He does whatever Ahab tells him to do. He has no filter no wall against this ungodly influence, and it almost costs him his life. Thirdly, it costs him his legacy. And we're going to read Second Chronicles 21, 1 to 7 in just a minute. So we'll circle back to that. What I want you to know is that Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, who marries into the mob, ends up acting like a mobster. And it costs Jehoshaphat's family. So this is quite a turn. This is a roller coaster. Right? Chapter 17, it's all great. Chapter 18, we're coming crashing down. So then you come to chapter 19. The Lord sends Jehu, the son of Hanani, to rebuke Jehoshaphat for welcoming this ungodly influence into his life. And remarkably, Jehoshaphat listened to Jehu, the son of Hanani, and he repented. This is pretty interesting. Second Chronicles 19.1, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. He escapes by the skin of his teeth. Ahab didn't. Verse 2, but Jehu, the son of Hanani the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Let me tell you a little backstory here. Jehoshaphat's dad was named Asa. For the most part, a good king. But as Corey preached a few weeks ago, he did some stupid stuff. And when he did some stupid stuff, the Lord sent a prophet to rebuke Asa. That prophet's name was Hanani. Do you know what Asa did when Hanani came and rebuked him for his sin? He pulled a, a move out of Ahab's playbook and he sent him to prison. So you see this dynamic. This is a generational conflict brewing. Now you have the son of Asa. Jehoshaphat is the king. And he has messed up royally. And the Lord is going to send a prophet. And he says, who will I send? How about the son of Hanani, Jehu? So Jehu gets this calling and he goes, oh, yeah, I know how this plays out. You go tell the king he's an idiot and then you go to jail. So Jehu, the son of Hanani, probably goes on this mission thinking, I'm not coming home. I'm going to go tell the king 
that he has really messed up, that the Lord is angry with him, and then I am not going to pass go, I'm going to go directly to jail. And then the most remarkable thing happens. Jehu listens. He listens. This is the rest of the conversation. Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you. For you destroyed the Asheroth out of the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. And you can keep going into chapter 4 and what follows. Here's the summary. He points God's people back to the Lord. Right? We're not going to mess around with these people anymore. We're going to turn back to the Lord. He appoints judges in Judah, and he says, you have got to be godly in your judgment. You've got to have a good influence on the people. You can't take bribes. You can't be cheaters. You can't be dishonest. You've got to, you've got to play by the book. He points them in the right direction. He trains the Levites, and he says, you guys have to fear the Lord. This is not just a, a job where you go through the motions. You Levites have to actually fear the Lord. And then he tells the people, I need you to be courageous. Remember what we read in chapter 17? His heart was courageous in following the Lord. He's turning back. He's repented. And he says to the people, look, we can't trust in Ahab and Israel. We have to be courageous and we have to trust in the Lord. This is what, uh, when you read the rest of chapter 19, this is what Jerry Reno, one of our deacons, would call all good things. I see Jerry Reno on a Sunday morning. I say, hey, Jerry, what's going on? All good things. This is what he tells me all the time. All good things. And I read this end of chapter 19, right? 17 is great. Then he's just doing whatever Ahab tells him to do. He gets rebuked by the prophet. He actually listens. He actually repents. And he does all good things. It's fantastic. And then the thunderclouds start brewing. That's kind of how life works sometimes, right? Life, your relationship with God is not magic. You don't repent and do all good things and then God sends all sunshine. Sometimes you repent and do the exact right thing and then the thunderclouds show up. And you think, what in the world did I do to deserve this? It doesn't have anything to do with deserve. That's just how life works sometimes. So let's see what happens here. The Moabites, the Ammonites attack Judah. Jehoshaphat is afraid and he sets his face to seek the Lord. This is one of my absolute favorite stories in all of the Old Testament. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to read verse 1 to 12. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then... Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. This is a beautiful thing. They don't call Ahab's son in Israel and say, we need you to come help us. That's what they did last time. I'll go to battle with Ahab and do whatever you want. Now he says, no, 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 we're not... We're not trusting in them. We're going to be courageous in the Lord, and they actually do it. Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, this is a prayer, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. You remember, when he prays this prayer, he's afraid. He's terrified. He's scared. His knees are knocking. 
as he stands up in the temple and prays this prayer. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and built in it for you a sanctuary for your name, saying if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. We'll cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O God, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a great prayer. It's rooted in what God has promised to do in the past. It's rooted in God's grace and his goodness and his power and his provision that's been displayed to his people in the past. Jehoshaphat has listened to the Levites who went around teaching the Old Testament law. He's listened to those men. He knows the stories. And this is one of his shining moments. He is absolutely terrified. You understand that some of your greatest spiritual moments, victories, days, whatever, will come when you are most afraid. And when you find yourself saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm powerless in this situation. All that he knows how to do is look to the Lord. We are powerless against this great horde. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That is a wonderful thing to pray when you don't know what to pray and you don't know what to do. To just say to God, God, I I don't know. I don't know what to do right now. I don't know how to feel about this. I'm terrified, but I'm looking to you and I'm trusting in you. So God sends a prophet, his name is Jehaziel, and Jehaziel shows up and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to bed tonight and get a good night's sleep. And then we're going to wake up early in the morning, you're going to put your marching shoes on, you're going to march out to the battlefield, but you are not going to have to fight. All you have to do is sing. You just go out. Worship the Lord and watch what happens. So the people go to bed. What a great thing to do when you're afraid. They go to sleep. Then they wake up early in the morning and they march out. And Jehoshaphat is leading the group out and they're singing praises. And along the way, Jehoshaphat is saying to the people, you got to be courageous. we got to trust the Lord. And you almost read it thinking he's trying to talk himself into this because he's still terrified. But that's what faith does. When you're terrified, you put one foot in front of the other and you follow the Lord and you fix your eyes on the Lord and they get out to the battle and they line up and they're singing and they're praying and they're worshiping and the Lord sets an ambush between these two nations who have come out against them and the people of Judah stand there and watch these two nations destroy each other to the last man. Then they go out on the battlefield and it takes three whole days to pick up all the treasure that's left from these dead soldiers. They don't have to lift a finger and God takes care of them. 
Here's how it wraps up. Second Chronicles 20, verse 26. On the fourth day, remember three days getting the treasure. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah. For there they blessed the Lord. That word Barakah means blessing. So they're blessing the Lord. They realize we didn't do this. We didn't save ourselves. God saved us. They blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Barakah to this day. They returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. They weren't afraid of Jehoshaphat. They were afraid of the Lord. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Here's a wonderful story. An absolutely wonderful story. And then the train goes off the track one more time. And I wish I could explain it to you, but I can't explain it to you. This is what happens. At the end of his life, Jehoshaphat was still inviting ungodly influences into his life. He just keeps doing it. He has this great influence on the people. He calls them to be courageous and to worship and to trust the Lord. And we're going to go to the temple. We're going to celebrate all the great things that God has done. He has good influence on the nation. And then he keeps inviting nonsense, riffraff, into his life. Here's the examples. Ahab is dead. Remember, he died in the battle. Ahaziah takes the throne. And first he teams up with Ahaziah. And they come up with this money-making scheme. It's like a Ponzi scheme with boats and ships. And we're going to go get all this money and we're going to bring it back. It's a surefire deal. You're going to make a million dollars in a day. It's going to be easy money. And the Lord gets mad at him and blows all the ships up in the water. That doesn't go well. Then he teams up with Jehoram for a battle. He's going right back like a dog going back to its vomit is the fool going back to his folly. He teams up with Jehoram for a battle. Why does he need to team up with Jehoram for a battle? He just watched the Lord take out these two nations. All they had to do was sing while these nations destroyed themselves and he's inviting all of these ungodly influences into his life. Here's my guess. My guess is most of us can relate to this because we're pretty inconsistent people, right? Like if we took a snapshot of your life on a Sunday morning, it probably looks great. You're in church, you're singing. People have asked you how you're doing. You have said, wonderful. Everything's good. Like the snapshot looks fantastic. But then you take a snapshot on like Friday afternoon or Tuesday morning or sometime during the week. It may not look quite like that. And an outsider looking at your life may say, what, what's the difference? Like what happened to Sunday morning? And the, the things that you were singing and the prayer you... like." What happened? But that's, that's us, right? Inconsistent people. Good days, bad days. The kings were no different. So what do we learn from Jehoshaphat's life and reign as king of Judah? Number one, sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. Ahab was the mob boss. Corey talked about that. Jehoshaphat gives his son to be married to the daughter of the mob boss. When you do that, how should you expect your son to end up? You marry into the mob, you're probably going to expect violence and death and destruction and hatred and discord and problems. 
And this is what you find in Second Chronicles 21. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David. Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Remember, Jehoram is now the son-in-law of Ahab's line. He's married into the mob family. Son reigned in his place. He had brothers. Jehoram had other brothers. The sons of Jehoshaphat. There was Azariah and Jehiel and Zechariah and Azariah, Michael, Shephatiah. These were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions. Where did he get that? Remember the Philistines were sending him stuff? Three days picking up the treasure out on the battlefield. God had provided all that wealth. He gave it to his kids. He also gave them fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. So Jehoram's on the throne. Verse 4, when Jehoram had ascended to the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Why would he do a thing like that? It was because he was half mobster at this point. Or maybe he was all mobster at this point. Jehoshaphat welcomed an ungodly influence directly into his family, into the life of his son in marrying Ahab's daughter. And there's a consequence for that. All of his sons get slaughtered. Second, this is straight out of 1 Corinthians 15.33. You don't need to look it up. It's a quote. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. It is really a striking thing to step back and to read this story of Jehoshaphat and to see how much godly influence he had on the nation. As much godly influence as any other king that you'll find. I mean, he's sending preaching teams out on preaching tours. And he's saying to the Levites and to the judges, you've got to be godly, you've got to fear the Lord, you've got to do it by the book, you've got to know God's law. He's pointing them to do the right thing for all the right reasons. He leads the nation in a prayer service, in a, a, a national fasting day. He leads them out to the battlefield singing and praying and encouraging them. All these godly influences. And then he gets around Ahab and his two knucklehead sons and he just does whatever they tell him to do. It's just shocking. Bad company ruins good morals. You have to be mindful of the influences that you let into your life. You have to be mindful of the influences that you let into your life, into the life of your kids, into the life of your grandkids. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't think for a minute that you can hang around with ungodly, wicked people and it not affect you. That's true in real life, face-to-face, -face, the people you associate with. It's also true in not real life, your cell phones. You don't think your phone has influence over you? You don't think that through a telephone screen that bad company can ruin good morals? There was a, a study came out, an internal study from Facebook that was leaked out this week. Facebook owns Instagram. And they did this massive study on the influence of Instagram on young people. It's an internal study. And it said, yeah, you know, teenage girls that use Instagram, it really messes them up really not good. They come away with body issue images. They come away with depression issues. They come away with also, I mean, it just lists it all out in the study. It's an internal memo. Somehow they're saying internally, we should probably try to mitigate this, but that's the nature of what they've created. It's unavoidable. 
bad company ruins good morals in real life and in digital life. It's an influence. And we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can invite influences into our lives and not be affected by those things. Even a great, good, godly king like Jehoshaphat does the dumbest things when he gets around the dumbest people. When he gets alone with the Lord and he's listening to the prophets, great. When he goes over to Ahab's house, down the toilet. Sin has consequences, bad company ruins good morals. Thirdly, when we're afraid, we should set our face to seek the Lord. I just think chapter 20 is a remarkable story. And I don't want to dogpile on Jehoshaphat too bad. Because the big picture of his life is he's a good king and he's a godly king. And this episode in chapter 20 is absolutely a beautiful thing. Because you will face things in your life, you will experience things in your life that terrify you. They just absolutely terrify you. And you step back and you say, I'm completely powerless in this situation. There is not anything I can do for good or bad. Like, I can't change any of it. What do you do in that situation? You do exactly what Jehoshaphat did in Second Chronicles 20. You set your face to seek the Lord. And you just look to God and you're honest with him. And you say, God, I don't know what to do. But I'm going to fix my eyes on you. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 where he talks about the Spirit interceding for us with groans that are too deep for words. This is when you come to the Lord in prayer and all you can do is just groan. Say, God, I don't... uh, I'm going to fix my eyes on you and I'm going to seek the Lord. That's what you do when you're afraid. Fourthly, we should always listen to the Word of God. And to his credit, Jehoshaphat does this. I just want you to notice the, the flow of this, if you have your Bible open still. Second Chronicles 17. It's all good stuff, right? Jerry Reno land. All good things. Then you get to 18, and you start off with the marriage alliance, verse 1. And then you read about this alliance with Ahab. And then you read about he's buying into Ahab's cockamamie scheme about what he's going to wear into battle, and he's not saying anything when Ahab throws the prophet of Yahweh into prison. It's just an absolute train wreck. And then in 19, Jehu, the son of Hanani, shows up. God did not owe Jehoshaphat one more prophet. That's God's grace that he sent him this prophet. He could have just said, Jehoshaphat, you want to be done with me? You can have it. But he sends him a prophet, and the prophet says to Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked... And love those who hate the Lord. And he's cut to the quick. He's cut to the heart. And he repents. And it's a really good thing that he does. Because in the very next chapter, an army comes to kill him. This is my point to you. You never know when those storm clouds are coming on the horizon. You never know, 2 Chronicles 20, when the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Munites are going to march against you. Jehoshaphat, when he listened to Jehu, the son of Hanani, he did not know that right around the corner was going to be the greatest crisis of his life. But it's a really good thing that he listened to the Lord when he sent this prophet because it prepared his heart and it prepared the hearts of the people to repent, to humble themselves, to carry out this fast, to seek the Lord 
when this army came marching against them. So here's the deal. You're here on a Wednesday night. We're talking about the word of God. You come to church on Sunday morning. We're studying Colossians. That's the word of God. You come to a Sunday school class at Emmanuel. You're a Sunday school lesson. Uh, Sunday school lesson. It may not be earth shattering. It's the word of God being talked about in your class. You have your morning devotion, right? I read some stuff in my morning to devotion this morning that I thought, eh, not the greatest devotion I've ever had. Kind of boring. David at the end of his life, yeah, I know this story. It's weird. I don't understand parts of it. Get through it. You never know what's coming tomorrow. You had better listen to the word of God when you hear it. If it's in your devotion, if it's in your Sunday school class, if it's on a Sunday morning, if it's on a Wednesday night, you had better listen to the word of God because the storm clouds could come tomorrow. The armies could march against you tomorrow. The doctor could call you tomorrow. The bottom could drop out tomorrow. And when that happens, there's no time to prepare for it. So you prepare for it now and you prepare for it by listening to the word of God. One last thought, Jesus, the son of Jehoshaphat, is the only one who can be the good, God, godly influence that we need. And I just direct your attention back to Colossians. You can look at Matthew. Jehoshaphat is in the line of Jesus. He's in this family tree, this genealogy that leads up to Jesus. We read Colossians 1, verse 15 to 20, as we started off the evening. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, By him, all the things in heaven and earth were created, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. They're all created through him and for him. He's before in him, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It's talking about his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile, provide reconciliation, making peace by the blood of his cross. Look at verse 21 and 22. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus is the son of Jehoshaphat. And he did not come just to have a positive influence on your life. He did not come just to say, hey, I'm going to set an example and you should try to do what I'm doing. If you try to be like me and you do it well enough, if you score a 70 on the exam, then you're going to get into heaven when you die. Because this is you and me, just like Jehoshaphat and all his foolishness, We were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's us. We need a pretty strong influence to change us from the inside out. How does that happen? Paul explains it right here. He has reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, those who were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Jesus, the son of Jehoshaphat, has an influence that no one else can have. And it's the influence. We're going to talk about it this Sunday in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13, that can take you from the domain of darkness 
and it can transfer you into the kingdom of the king. That's a great influence. That's the influence we need. Not just the example of a king who was good and godly most of the time, but a king like Jesus who can take people who are lost and stuck in the domain of darkness and can move us, transfer us by his death and his resurrection into his kingdom. These stories all end up pointing us to Jesus and how desperately we need him. So that's Jehoshaphat. Next week, we're going to talk about Jehu. Uh, It will not be as positive as what we've talked about tonight. Jehu, king of Israel, fascinating story, not very uh, encouraging in a lot.